Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop reflects upon his recent diocesan heritage pilgrimage, including the people he met, the things he learned, and the new places he visited, all while learning about the history of the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend with others. Then it's on to St. Ignatius of Loyola, whose feast day was yesterday. Bishop talks about the Ignatian spiritual exercises, which can be used as a discernment tool, as well as an Ignatian method of prayer. The show wraps up with a life of St. John Vianney, whose feast day is also this week, then questions submitted by Fort Wayne Junior High students. If you would like to ask Bishop a question for a future show, you can submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And you recently went, we've been talking about this for a while, but it finally happened, the Diocesan Heritage Pilgrimage. Yes. You know, we had a great time. The group was wonderful uh, from people from throughout the diocese. And uh, it was just very spiritually enriching, but also, you know, the historical sites. We we learned so much and experienced a lot of hospitality from people. We had great opportunities to pray together, celebrating Mass and Liturgy of the Hours, and and learning about some of these people who were really heroic in Hmm. establishing the church in in this region, Uh, beginning with Bardstown, which was uh, created as a diocese in 1808. And we learned all about Bishop Fleger and some of the early pioneers. And then on to St. Meinrad's, my first time there, and the monks were very hospitable, and uh-huh. that was such a beautiful place. And then Vincennes, which I had been to, but I was so happy to pray again at the tomb of Bishop Simon Gabriel Brute, who I've always admired. Uh, he 
became the first bishop in Indiana in 1834 and came from Mount St. Mary's like I came from Mount St. Mary's. So it was uh, great. We prayed evening prayer at the, the first cathedral, St. Francis Xavier. And then we finished, and I had never been to St. Mother Theodore Guerin's shrine before, but we, we finished at the mother house of the Sisters of Providence, who were so instrumental in the beginning of Catholic education in our diocese, and to pray at the tomb of St. Mother Theodore Guerin, Indiana's saint, and learn more about her. That was very moving. We had Mass and with all the sisters in their beautiful chapel, their beautiful church. So I think that was a great climax to the whole pilgrimage. And the sisters were, were wonderful. And along the way, we learned so many things. And I spoke in a couple homilies about, especially the final homily on Sunday, about St. Mother Theodore Guerin and her mm. connection to our diocese. And she came here to Fort Wayne. And it was really wonderful. So I could go on and on about this, but I would say it was uh, definitely worth it. Everyone kind of just enjoyed each other's company. And... Um, just found it to be spiritually enriching. I think the people who participated, all the pilgrims, uh, I'm sure are sharing their experiences with others since they've come home. And uh, I pray it will bear a lot of good spiritual fruit in their lives. And you seem to know a lot about these different places in the history before you went, but was there something that stands out to you as something that you learned on the trip? Yeah, I did learn new things for sure. You know, I knew a lot of the history, but but going to the different places, we had guides mm. who um, spoke about the the experiences. I think probably the place I, I knew the least about before going was Bardstown and learning something about the beginnings of the church in in Kentucky. You know, we were part of that diocese. So I didn't know, for example, about Mother Catherine Spaulding, who founded the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth and was really a hmm. remarkable woman, uh, similar in some ways to Mother Theodore Guerin. So that was someone I think I had heard of her, but didn't know, I knew hardly anything about her. So, so that was something new that I learned. I learned more about Bishop Fleger. We visited the not only the cathedral in Bardstown, but a few miles away, St. Thomas Church, which was there before the cathedral, and that was there when Bishop Fleger, and, and they have his house, I guess a replica, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it has original parts, some of the wood, etc., yeah. but it's been restored. And just kind of going and walking through the house and just seeing how they lived, I mean, it was so small compared to the, what we would live in today, and he had some seminarians there and a couple priests, and... So I think that's probably the part of the trip that I learned the most because I didn't know as much about Bardstown. Yeah. So I've heard of other families going on pilgrimages and trips. It's not something that we've necessarily done with our kids yet. Anything that you think would be particularly good for families with children or maybe even specifically young children of those places? Yeah, you know what I, I would say is even going on vacations wherever people go, mm -hmm. I, I always recommend, you know, find if there's any good Catholic historical sites to visit, yeah. a cathedral or a basilica or, or whatever, because they're all over the country and try to incorporate that into your vacation plans. I highly recommend that. I would say that of the places we visited, I think kids would enjoy it because just the beauty of some of the churches, for example. I mean, anyone going to that area of Terre Haute 
to stop and see their beautiful mother house chapel and the shrine that they have of Our Lady of Providence and to see the, the actual tomb of St. Mother Theodore Guerin, I think children would really love that because everyone is touched by beauty. Mm-hmm. Anything planned for the future? Another trip? No, not really. Okay. Um, you know, this was the second Dawson pilgrimage other than World Youth Day pilgrimages that I've had. The first one was several years ago to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington. And we went on and visited Mount St. Mary's and the Basilica Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. And that was very popular. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely open to another one in the future. But it does take a lot of planning and, and my schedule. But it's definitely worth it. So I hope to do another one in the future. Sure. Well, yesterday we celebrated the Feast of St. Ignatius Loyola. That was on July 31st. Can you give us a a brief recap of his life and maybe some of the things that he was known for? Yeah, I mean, St. Ignatius Loyola, of course, was the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. He had a famous conversion. He had been a soldier in Spain, and he was wounded. And it was while he was recovering that he experienced a very profound conversion, reading a a book of the life of Christ and also lives of the saints. Hmm. So his personal experience of Christ during his recovery led him to to, um, reflect on his life, and he really grew in union with God during that time. So he was discerning God's will and discerned that um, he would have some followers who would become his companions in founding this this great order in the life of the church back in the 16th century. So spiritually, he is really a, a master of the spiritual life. The spiritual exercises are, of course, famous. They have impacted literally tens of thousands of people, um, myself included, mm-hmm. when I did the exercises as a seminarian. As you may know, it's a compilation of his meditations and prayers, and it's really a classic in Western spirituality. It's it's more like a handbook. You don't just go out and buy the spiritual exercises and read it. It's really a handbook for a retreat where you have a spiritual director who guides and directs you during this process. I've never had the opportunity to do a 30-day retreat, which would be ideal. I've only done the eight-day Jesuit retreats with hmm. the spiritual exercises, but it really is a beautiful way to to learn to overcome sin by the grace of God, to conquer self, and to make decisions according to God's will. You know, the principles of discernment that St. Ignatius provided are, are used today by so many. Uh, of course, we see the influence of St. Ignatius Loyola on, on um, Pope Francis, who was a Jesuit. Typical thing is the structure would be according to four weeks. If you do a 30-day retreat, it really is an ideal thing. But, I mean, it's hard for people to be yeah. able to take 30 days off. As I said, I've done the spiritual exercises in eight-day retreats. But really, it's not necessarily seven-day weeks. There's stages on our spiritual journey. And um, it's a journey towards spiritual freedom hmm. um, and to a more wholehearted commitment to God in one's life. So each week has different themes. Um, the first week of the spiritual exercises is really a time to reflect on our lives in light of God's love. 
in that process, we see that our response to God's love has been hindered by patterns of sin in our life. So in the first week, we face these sins, knowing that God wants to free us of everything that gets in the way of our loving response to Him. And the first week ends with a meditation on Christ's call to follow Him, follow me, as He said to the disciples. In doing the, uh, the, the spiritual exercises in the eight-day retreat, we uh, take four hours of prayer for one hour times of meditation every day. And, you know, again, under the, the guidance of a good spiritual director who understands and knows the spiritual exercises, using the spiritual exercises help us and guide us in what scripture to meditate upon, etc. So that's basically the first week. The second week, really, after that invitation to follow Christ, really teaches us how to be his disciples. So we reflect on scripture passages, for example, of Christ's birth, his baptism, his Sermon on the Mount, his ministry of healing, his teaching, raising Lazarus from the dead. These are all particular meditations that St. Ignatius points out. And through this second week, we're brought to decisions to change our lives, to do Christ's work in the world, and to love him more intimately. So the second week is always, for me, is especially beautiful to kind of be rekindled in that um, knowledge of these fundamentals of, of being a disciple of Jesus. The third week, a lot of the meditation is on the Last Supper and Christ's death, his passion and his death. And we really see his suffering and the gift of the Eucharist as the ultimate expression of God's love. Mm -hmm. So the third week is also very powerful. The fourth week, it's on reflection on Jesus's resurrection and then his appearances to the disciples after he rose from the dead. So the whole idea is that we walk through life with the risen Christ, set out to love and to serve him in concrete ways in our life in the world. So typically, this can be done in a, a 30-day format. That would probably be the ideal, but you can also do it in an eight-day format or even you know something in between. But a lot of people are interested in Ignatian spirituality and practice the spiritual exercises in, in various ways. So anyhow, I could go on and on about this, but I, I would want to mention one thing that, I, that really impacted me from the first time that I did them, is the way we're taught in the spiritual exercise to imagine ourselves right there in the biblical story. For example, right there with the fishermen along the Sea of Galilee mm. when Jesus calls them, or right there at the foot of the cross with Mary and John. So it's kind of a technique or a method of prayer that I love. I mean, it's, it's a way to really enter into the mystery of Christ. And it's, it's a way to do Lexio Divina, prayerful meditating, meditation on the Word of God. So if someone asks me, or even when I was in the seminary or as a teacher in the seminary and rector, I would guide my spiritual directees, the seminarians, to teach them that imaginative way of prayer. And they really responded to that. And even today, when I, especially with the Gospels, 
I still use that method of prayer, which really is an Ignatian method that I learned through the spiritual exercises. So, the discernment of spirits, one other thing is uh-huh. these principles of discernment also kind of, even while not on retreat, they teach us to notice the interior movements of our hearts and discern where they're leading us to. Hmm. And it's really listening to the Holy Spirit. And that's spiritual discernment is really important in, in decision-making, even in our families or our, our work, whatever. So that's another prominent idea of the, of the exercises. So to find a formal retreat like this, could you just look online and find a retreat center that offers that? Or would you have to coordinate with somebody to put it on for you or for a group? You can look online. I, I know, you know, when I was in Pennsylvania, there was a Jesuit retreat house in Warnersville, which was in the Diocese of Allentown, but not too far away. So they would regularly offer the spiritual exercises. There are also individual priests who know how to do guidance in spiritual exercises, especially Jesuit priests. Mm-hmm. We have a house of Jesuits up at Notre Dame, for example, and I think they would be wonderful spiritual directors, although they're, they're students or teachers, so I don't know okay. how much time they have for it. But I did have, I've had these Jesuits up at Notre Dame do days of recollection in that for our priests. So, and they bring in some of this uh, wisdom from St. Ignatius Loyola. Uh-huh. Is there a book that you would recommend? I know you said it's, it's not just a book that you read, but yeah. is there a guidebook? Well, you could, or get, a, some you could get a copy of the spiritual exercises, but it doesn't hurt. But mm-hmm. it's not really, you wouldn't be that, uh, I don't think, that inspired because it's more like a handbook. I would say no book immediately comes to mind, but... I think you could read a, a little bit about the life of St. Ignatius, a good biography sure. of him, I would recommend. But I think online, too, you could you could do some searches and find information that would be helpful and, and also maybe places where the spiritual exercises are being offered. And just as a little bit of background, maybe we'll have to do a whole episode on this in the future of different religious orders, but can you explain what would be the difference between a Jesuit priest and a diocesan priest? Well, a Jesuit priest is is one who, uh, obviously, like other religious, they take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They live in community life, and they have specific apostolates. So the Jesuits, of course, are, are famous for universities and colleges that they run. They're great teachers. They have a long period of formation, so they have a lot of intellectual formation. The Jesuits also have always been, you know, great missionaries. So, and still today, the Jesuit missions. The first missionaries in, you know, we talked about the Diocesan Heritage Pilgrimage. Well, the first missionaries in our area were Jesuits Hmm. um, back in the 17th century. The North American martyrs, you know, they were Mm -hmm. Jesuits. It's really a, a wonderful community, but there's something about Ignatian spirituality that I see as fitting for diocesan priests. So I send our seminarians the summer before they start theology for a 10-week program at the Institute for Priestly Formation in Omaha, Nebraska, and that's all Ignatian spirituality, okay. 10 weeks of spiritual formation that they receive. But each, each religious order has its own particular charism, according to the founder. So I think the Jesuit charism 
as I mentioned, uh, very much founded on the spiritual exercises, but it's mostly, you know, teaching and, um, and missionary work would be their, their main apostolates. And I suppose there's a, a well-known Catholic that's a Jesuit that people might recognize as Pope Francis. That's right. You might have heard and of him. you can really, you know, you can see the Jesuit influence in his homilies and his talks. He he talks does a lot about discernment, discernment of spirits. That's uh-huh. very Jesuit. That's very Ignatian. So yeah, first pope in the history of the church who's a Jesuit. But when you think about it, there are so many Jesuit saints. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were at the forefront of the Counter Reformation. That was really important what they did and uh and at the forefront of missionary efforts in america and also the far east we have the great patron saint of the missions saint francis xavier he was one of the original companions of of uh, saint ignatius and he brought the the gospel to to india and and to the far east i mentioned the north american martyrs right here jesuit martyrs we have Great patron saint of seminarians was a Jesuit novice, hmm. Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, okay. and Saint Robert Bellarmine. He was a cardinal. But he was the head of the um, Roman College in Rome, where I attended. It's now the the Pontifical Gregorian University. So the list goes on of um, the fruits of Saint Ignatius's work, his life, and his work in really so many uh, holy men and women. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about the Feast of St. John Vianney, patron of parish priests, and answer questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and Saturday, August 4th, will be the Feast of St. John Vianney, who is the patron of parish priests. Oh, why, of all of the priests that are saints, why does he get to be the patron saint for parish priests? That's a good question. Um, St. John Vianney struggled in the seminary. You know, he really struggled with Latin. Hmm. But I, I would say because he was a simple holy priest, a parish priest himself. He was sent to serve in this, the village of Ars in France, where there was very little practice of the faith. It was a, a town that needed to be converted. Um, people were either not living the faith or were very lukewarm in the faith. I always remember the story when he was traveling there on the road. He met a boy, a young boy, who Father uh, Jean Vianney asked him, you know, what direction to go, where, where was ours? And the boy helped him and showed him how to get there. And uh, John Vianney replied, thank you for showing me the way to ours. I will show you the way to heaven. Hmm. And in a way, that's very simple, but it really does you know, encapsulate the mission of the priest is to show people the way to heaven and to help them get there. So when he arrived and you know, wasn't well received, I mean, it was, a, as I said, people weren't, didn't really have much faith. There were a lot of things going on that were against the faith. And he was just very patient and just started to, I mean, he was a man of intense prayer. And so he celebrated the Eucharist with great devotion. His holiness exuded and started to attract people. And I think one of the 
famous things is the amount of time he would spend hearing confessions. And at the beginning, there were just a few who would go to confession. But that grew from a trickle to be people not only from ours, but from all over because of his reputation for sanctity. So the whole parish was transformed by his his ministry. And it was it was through his, I mean, deep spiritual life. He would spend hours and hours in prayer before the tabernacle. He recognized that the conversion of sinners was was his mission. He himself had such a great love for Christ, and so he saw people who were distant from God and living lives of sin, and he, he knew that his vocation was to bring them back to God. So people were drawn to him. They were drawn to him in the confessional. He would spend hours and hours hearing confessions, and people's lives started to change. So I think he's a very good example for priests, example of perseverance. And he had this um, this definition of the priesthood. He, he said the, priest, the priesthood is the love of the heart of Jesus. So even hmm. that's very simple, it's very profound at the same time. And he, he talked about, you know, the importance of the inner life of a priest, the, the centrality of prayer in a priest's life. And even things like celebrating Mass, not as something routine or ordinary, but as, as the great mystery and miracle that it is. So he's a very good patron for priests. We can all learn from his example. He was held up, again, as an example to us by, by Pope Benedict XVI during the Year of Priests. He wrote a beautiful message about the life of St. John Vianney. He was declared patron of the of parish priests. Shortly after he was canonized, he was canonized in 1925, and then three years later declared patron of the world's parish priests. Well, and speaking of parish priests, we recently celebrated your 35th anniversary as a priest. So I was kind of curious, as you look back, is there anything that you wish you had done differently or you had wish you had known earlier on in your priesthood or maybe even during the preparation time as a seminarian? That's a good question. I, I would say I wouldn't change anything. I had no idea when I was ordained what my priestly life would be like, mm -hmm. the variety of assignments that I had. And I grew in each one of them. I grew through my mistakes that I made. I learned, you know, from the, my very first assignment as an associate pastor at St. Patrick's in York, Pennsylvania, I was filled with zeal. I was only there two years before I was sent back to Rome for more studies. But in those two years, I learned so much. I, um, it was a great parish and I had a wonderful pastor. I also was doing part-time Hispanic ministry and serving Mexican migrant workers in Adams County. It was just a very, very joyful time. And then when I came back from studies in Rome, I was assigned to serve the Hispanic community in Harrisburg while also working at the chancery as an assistant chancellor, so working in the office. I would say I learned in that time. I got a little bit overworked. Um, I didn't <laughs> keep the balance that I should, but again, we learned from our mistakes. That was a time where I was, I mean, I was happy being a priest, but I, I probably overdid it with the two assignments that I had. So you do learn things along the way. So I guess that's one thing I could say that I would change is probably I would have, in those years, tried to have a better balance. 
after that, I became a pastor. And of course, all priests, you know, the parish is our first love. And uh, I really treasure the time that I served as pastor, which was um, five years at St. Francis of Assisi, which was the poorest parish in the Diocese of Harrisburg. It was a challenging place because it was inner city and there was a lot of violence and a lot of social ills. But I learned so much and worked uh, really hard with the poor and, and, um, and also to integrate the parish, which was Hispanic, uh, African-American, small Vietnamese community and an Anglo community. I learned so much about the beauty of uh, the diversity of cultures within the church. And it was really beautiful to see how that unity and diversity grew during the time that I was pastor. It was um, a very beautiful experience for me. And then I was really surprised that I was then assigned to go to the seminary to teach. And I was sent to Mount St. Mary's, taught for two years, and then became rector of the seminary. And I was pretty young. I was the youngest member in the faculty, and then I became the rector. Um, hmm. So again, a lot of surprises, you know, as Pope Francis says, God is a God of surprises. Mm. Like, I hadn't planned any of this. Right. You know, I was getting all these very new, unique experiences in every assignment that I had. But, but being obedient, even though I knew my shortcomings, there's something liberating about that promise of obedience. That even though I might not have felt well-equipped for this, some of the assignments that I had, somehow God's grace sustains us and helps us. We have to be, remain re rooted in Him. So I was there two years teaching, then seven and a half years after that as rector. And then lo and behold, at the age of 46, uh, appointed to be a bishop. That was another big surprise, as I said, the God of surprises. Yeah. And then five years as Bishop of Harrisburg, and then surprised again by being transferred to this great diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. So really, I can only say thank you to God for the gifts of the past 35 years as a priest, but also I feel I've been so blessed by the people I've been privileged to serve everywhere I've been, including right now here in our diocese. All right. Well, we are certainly glad that you are here and that God has put you here. And I don't know if people were surprised to have you come here, but we're, we're definitely thankful and grateful. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line. That's 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about scapulars, tattoos, and if St. Joseph was married before the Blessed Mother. Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that have been submitted for Bishop to answer. These are actually leftover questions. We had so many great questions when some of our students from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton submitted them, and we didn't get around to all of them, so I wanted to do some catch-up here. Uh, first question, do you feel that Catholicism is the right faith, or do you believe others are just as good and truthful? Wow, these young people come <laughs> up with some great questions. Yeah. I would answer that question. It made me think immediately of St. Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15, where St. Paul described the church as the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And then 
In the second century, St. Irenaeus spoke of how the bishops have the sure charism of truth. So I think we have to be wary of relativism, which doesn't see or recognize objective truth. But there can always also be this relativism as regards the truth that's there in various churches or denominations. We believe as Catholics, and this is the teaching of the church through the ages, including the Second Vatican Council, that the church possesses the fullness of truth. The fullness of grace and the fullness of truth have been entrusted to the Catholic Church as a gift from Christ. So it is through Christ's Catholic Church, which is the universal help towards salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. So yes, I do feel that Catholicism is the right faith, and I do believe that there are elements of truth and grace in other Christian denominations, and even in some non-Christian. There are elements of truth, for example, within Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are they are elder brothers and sisters in the faith. But the fullness of the truth revealed by God has been entrusted to the Catholic Church. So, yeah, I hope that that mm-hmm. helps. All right. If you need to replace a scapular, does it have to be blessed before you can wear it? That's a good question. Um, you don't have to. It's always good to have a scapular blessed, but you can wear an unblessed scapular just as you can use an unblessed rosary. But when the opportunity presents itself, it's a good idea to have it blessed so that it becomes a sacramental. Okay. How does the Catholic faith feel about people getting tattoos? I think I had that question uh, months ago, didn't we, I think I think July 19th we hit on it, but maybe you could offer a little recap oh, for Okay, very good. Well, basically the church doesn't have any formal teaching or formal decision on the matter of tattoos. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this question is an interesting one because we see that a lot more people are getting tattoos. Now, I think one has to be careful. The church does have a teaching that we shouldn't mutilate or damage our bodies. So... Even though some tattoos, I'd say, aren't, wouldn't classify, uh, or most wouldn't classify as as mutilation, but I think some people can get overboard with it. Another thing I would say one has to consider is, what's the motivation? Is it vanity? You know, like, what's the motivation? Another idea would be, we can't obviously have words or pictures on tattoos that are against the faith, you know, Mm -hmm. demonic kinds of things or unchaste things. Sometimes you'll see things like that. And one has to be careful about cleanliness. You don't want to do something if go to a place where you get pure tattoos where uh, the instruments aren't properly cleaned. So you don't want to damage your body. You don't want to have any mutilation of the body. And you don't want to have a tattoo that's going to offend people. So those are things that you, I think, should be considered. Um, But again, the church doesn't have an official specific teaching on this. All right. Another question. What was the age difference between Mary and Joseph? Was Joseph married before he married Our Lady? Did he have other children than Jesus? Well, you know, that's that's a question that um, 
I've heard many times as well. Basically, we don't know the age difference. Oftentimes in art, we see Joseph portrayed as an old man. Myself, I picture Joseph as a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we don't know for sure. I think the tradition of painting him as an old man came because they want to emphasize the chastity in their marriage. Mm. Uh, the fact that uh, Mary remained a virgin. But I don't think it's necessary that he had to be an old man for that to be the case. We don't know whether he was married before, like whether his first wife had died and then he married Mary. There's some who think that that's that's what happened and that's what when they refer to the brothers and sisters of Jesus, they're talking about Joseph's children from a previous marriage. Uh Again, it's a possibility, but we really don't know. So that's the answer. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have more questions from our young people about indulgences and the luminous mysteries coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And I am asking the questions that have been submitted by some of our middle school students a while back. And we're trying to get through a bunch of these. We kind of have a speed round going on here. First question for this segment is, how did St. Pope John Paul II decide which mysteries were the best ones for the luminous mysteries? I don't know how he decided the specific mysteries. I mean, clearly he saw that there was a gap between the joyful and the sorrowful mysteries, okay? The joyful mysteries, we reflect on the, those events of the early life of Jesus, and then we move to the sorrowful mysteries, which begin with the agony in the garden and Jesus's passion. But what about all those, the years of Jesus's public ministry? Mm-hmm. So clearly, John Paul wrote about how the rosary is a compendium of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a big section of the gospels missing. So I think it was such an inspired thing that he established the luminous mysteries, which, do, which you know treat with these events during Jesus's public life and ministry. And I just think he chose those that are particularly important. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're called luminous mysteries or mysteries of light each of them are revelatory, beginning with Jesus's baptism in the Jordan, where he's revealed. We have the revelation of the Trinity at that at the baptism, the voice of the Father and the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus the Son in the form of a dove. So each one is um, is a great mystery to to meditate upon. And then, of course, the Transfiguration, the proclamation of the gospel. When you consider these these great events, it's it truly makes the rosary a compendium of the gospel. So, yeah, I, I don't know exactly how, but I do believe he was inspired mm-hmm. um, in doing this. All right. How many different religious orders are there throughout the world? What order do you belong to? <laughs> there are hundreds and hundreds of religious congregations. Uh-huh. I do not belong to one. Most priests are not members of religious institutes. Most priests are diocesan priests, mm-hmm. which means they're connected to a bishop and a local a diocesan bishop and a geographical area that's called a diocese. Those who are religious priests, they 
they're part of a congregation, what we call a religious institute. They take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they live in community. They live a fraternal life. So that's not always the case with diocesan priests. Many of us will live alone. We do make a promise of obedience to the to the diocesan bishop. We're called to live a simple life of voluntary poverty, but we don't take a vow of poverty so that therefore we can own things, mm -hmm. like we can own a car, for example, whereas a priest in a religious congregation, he can't. If he uses a car, it's a car that belongs to the congregation. Mm -hmm. Of course, chastity is is required of diocesan priests, just as it's celibate chastity, just as it's required of priests who are members of religious congregations. But we talked earlier in the show about Jesuits, that they are an example of a religious order. There are many others with their own specific charisms, Franciscans and Dominicans and Salesians and Spiritans. There are a lot of different orders, and they all have their unique charism. All right. I had a Dominican explain to me as pointing to a bookshelf. He said, none of these books belong to me. They're just some books that belong more to me than the rest of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Is there a certain number of indulgences that are allowed to be given each year? Who is allowed to give an indulgence? Um, and maybe you could briefly explain what an indulgence is. Yes, I think we might have had this in a mm -hmm. previous show as well, you know, because indulgences throughout history has uh, have been, you know, misunderstood and sometimes abused. Basically, an indulgence is a remission in the eyes of God of the temporal punishment due to sins. It's not the same as the removal of guilt, which happens through you know, the forgiveness that we receive in the sacrament of penance in confession. This has to do with the remnants of sin, the temporal punishments due to sin. So the church, the supreme authority of the church, which is the Pope and the apostolic see, he has the power to, to establish indulgences. And he has a, an office in the Roman Curia called the Apostolic Penitentiary. So they're in charge of all things that are related to the granting and use of indulgences. So no authority below the Pope can assign to others the power to grant indulgences unless this has been expressly granted by the Apostolic See. Now, diocesan bishops, we have the right to grant partial indulgences to the Christian faithful who are committed to our care, or to impart the papal blessing three times a year in our diocese. So I do do that sometimes, you know, on some special events. But if one wants to learn more, there's what's called the Handbook of Indulgences, which gives all the norms um, for indulgences and explains things like what is a plenary indulgence and what is a partial indulgence and various prayers through which or one can obtain an indulgence. It's something that was more popular in the past, but I think there's been a little bit of a comeback, especially back in the year 2000 with the Jubilee year, where there were granting of indulgences for specific prayers or works or pilgrimages that were done during the Jubilee year. So it's good to, to read about. We, we speak of what's called the treasury of the church. It's really Christ himself is the, the church's treasure who merited for us 
the gift of salvation. And we have all the these gifts that have come to us through Christ's work of redemption and the church dispensing them through indulgences. All right. Well, this has been another great episode. Thank you so much, Bishop. I feel like we need to uh, start turning this into a two-hour show here. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next week for another new episode of Truth in Charity. Hear Bishop Rhodes talk about the lives of St. Dominic, St. Lawrence, and St. Clair, all of which have feast days coming soon. Then Bishop will reflect upon an upcoming gospel reading, the story of the Canaanite woman who persists in her request for Jesus to heal her daughter. And of course, the show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. If you have a question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rose is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.